One of the advantages of working as chaplain at a retirement community is that I feel young. <laughs> we have four residents that are over a hundred years old, and uh, two of them don't know that they are over a hundred, but two of them are, boy, they're really sharp. It's a delight to be here again. I had been in contact with John, or John had been in contact with me, and I had agreed that I would come when Pastor Cody was gone. And uh, two weeks after I had agreed to do so, uh, the administration called me out of retirement at Covenant Shores. And I said, I have a couple of commitments I'm going to keep. And if you won't let me keep them, then I don't want your job. That's an advantage that you have when you get a certain age. Uh, I was serving one of the churches for nine months in the Seattle area, and the first Sunday, the pastor always preached dressed very casually. I mean, very casually. And I'm a shirt and tie generation. And so the first Sunday I showed up, I did it right. It was World Communion Sunday. So I wore a pulpit gown and stole. <laughs> and I came walking out, and you, you could just see the reaction in the congregation. It's a pretty, pretty good-sized church. And I said, now, my name is Bud Palmberg, and I'm going to be here for the next several months. And I know that very few of you are visually impaired, so you know that I'm dressed differently than what you're used to your pastor dressed as. Some of you are going to like that, and some of you will not like that at all. In fact, during the months that I'm here, I will do several things that some of you will like and some of you will not like at all. But I'm going to do them anyway for two reasons. One is I'm old, and second reason, I don't need this job. <laughs> and I got away with everything because every time something would happen that they didn't like, they'd say, well, he's old. What are you going to do? He doesn't need the job. <laughs> I am delighted to see some of you again, and I am even more delighted to see some of you I have never seen before. God is blessing the ministry of this church. Uh, once I found the place this morning, and I did not have that hard a time finding it, it's just that I was very anxious that I would not be able to find it. But John's directions were very good, and the sandwich boards at the intersections were just right. So here I am. The only thing wrong is the coffee wasn't ready when I got here. So you better work on that. Let's pray. Precious Father, your word teaches us so much. And your word sometimes leaves such memorable statements that our lives can wrap around them for a long time. But we, as your people, are dependent upon your Holy Spirit. O Holy Spirit, come among us. Take those words that you give me and use them, and if they're just from me, let them pass from our hearing. We would hear you. In Jesus' name.
Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In a seldom dusted corner of the Bible, you can run across some fascinating stories. If you're like me, you have a tendency, while you may discipline yourself to read through the Bible in a sequential way, there are certain passages or books of the Bible that are favorites of yours, and you keep going back to them again and again and again and again. I see that, John, is, are you teaching Philippians? I just finished teaching that for probably the 20th time in my ministry. I, I preached my way through Colossians one time, and one of the ladies in the congregation came up to me after several months and said, Pastor Bud, I so appreciate your Creeping Through Colossians series. <laughs> but today I want, to, I want to pick up a phrase that I found in this story. It's a contemporary application for it. It's a fascinating story, and it's one I hadn't really noticed too much before, but it's found in 1 Kings chapter 20. It's part of the prophet's warning to the king. Now, the warning itself is not a particular concern to us, but the tale is very important because it's an appropriate matter for us. It's a story about King Ahab, who you may remember because he is best known for his wife, Jezebel. And King Ahab is riding home from battle, and he is stopped on the road by an apparently wounded man. And the wounded man has a tale to tell the king. The tale was this. King, while I was in battle, I was given a prisoner to guard with my life. I had every intention to guard that prisoner with my life. But with the confusions that always surround battles, somehow the prisoner escaped. There was so much for me to see and so much for me to do and so much for me to watch out for, to avoid. And here's the phrase. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. Verse 40. That's the phrase I've been thinking about more and more. And the longer I work at the retirement community where I live and deal with people who are in the final stages of life, many of them resisting the reality of that fact, I find this phrase, while your servant was busy here and there, something disappeared. It's the confession of a man who had one chief thing to do, but he scattered his loyalties among secondary concerns and failed to do the primary one. His best energy was expended elsewhere. And I have seen that so much, and there have been times in my own life when I've sensed it. The most common cause for failure is the excuse this man gave while your servant was busy here and there. Now, I'm not referring to business failure or career failure or even our yearnings or our ambitions or our goals, although that does apply there too. I'm thinking of the only kind of failure that we should truly fear, and that's the failure to be all that God wants us to be. The shortfall in becoming what we need to be for our families, for our church, for the Lord. 
The problem is life so seldom comes to us while we're coasting. I've talked to some of you who are retired or trying to retire. And the fact of the matter is some people have said, boy, I'd like to go back to my job. I only worked 60 hours a week. Now that I'm retired, everybody says, well, now that you're retired, you can help me with this project or you can help me with that project, and you wind up working and spending more time than ever. And the problem is we can be so distracted by so many things because life does not come to us when we're sitting with our hands folded across our chest, dozing in a chair. Instead, while we're in the thick of things, we often hear a still small voice saying, this is of vital importance. Guard it, preserve it, develop it, hang on to it. And we mean to. Our intentions are good. We may even write ourselves a note to remind ourselves. But it comes at such an exasperating time when there are so many demands on our attention. Now, in a few months, I'm going to be 78 years old. And I don't want to grow old, older, <laughs> like some of the friends I have. Growing old and living with regrets. I don't want to have them. I don't like them. I've seen too many older people, and some who are not so old, who wish they were young again so that they could focus on what's really important and let a lot of that which consumed the best years of their life just go away. Think for a minute about your family. The most sacramental of all human relationships that we so often take for granted. We live as though they'll always be there. And then suddenly, or so it seems suddenly, they're, they're not. While we were busy here and there, it's gone. And the years brimful of promise and blessing have run out. The children are grown. They're on their own. Or the husband and wife have become distant, kind of strangers. Or have a wounded spirit. While we were busy here and there with good things, with business, with recreation, with all kinds of good things, but now they don't seem so quite important. I just read yesterday an article about a very prominent pastor in America who's on television all the time that my wife calls her favorite pastor, her favorite Bible teacher that 12 years ago was divorced from his wife. And when the reason for divorce was investigated by the courts and by his church, the wife said, I was down the list of his priorities. And we just grew apart. Well, now in my theology, that is not grounds for divorce but it does explain some of the pain that experienced, even from a powerful man of God who was so wrapped up in running the church that he neglected his own family. I don't want that. My last two of seven grandchildren are seniors in high school this year, and they're going to be gone 
The other five are all over the world. One of the reasons I retired when I did from the church I was serving in Switzerland, they wanted me to stay for another term, another contract, and I was delighted to do so because I loved it and we were having some some real blessed times with the Lord's leading in that congregation. But one of the reasons I said, no, I'm going home. I'm going to the States. Why? I'd read this passage of Scripture, and I didn't want to be busy here and there in Switzerland when my own family, my own grandchildren, were growing up without giving me the joy of hanging around them, going to their games, taking them out for breakfast or brunch, or wrestling with them until they got too big. And I don't regret for a minute that I came home, although I would love to be back there again. Patrick Henry, that famous American patriot, wrote in his last will and testament, I have now disposed of all my property to my family. There is one thing more I wish I could give them, and that is faith in Christ Jesus. If they had that, and I had not given them one shilling, they would have been rich. If they had not that, and I had given them all the world, they would be poor indeed. Most of us know people and churches who have had the opportunity and the circumstances and the reasons to develop lives that have potential to draw other people to Christ, to draw others into a vital living faith in Christ by being who they are and whom God wants them to be, to build them up others by sharing themselves or to bless other people with the friendships that they enter into and to warm and anchor every family and every church relationship. All that and more could be true. But life was so rushed and there were so many demands on their time and so many distractions to them. Good things, valuable things, profitable things that while they were busy here and there, that vital and buoyant and singing and informed faith is gone and it leaves only a faint echo of what might have been. A King County Superior Court judge said to me as I was visiting him and he was dying and died within four days of this conversation, Bud, I have discovered that religion takes time and I just haven't had the time or given it the time. And he died without faith in Christ. It broke my heart. It's so easy to get on a speeding treadmill to make a cult out of pace, to complain about our hurried and our frantic schedules, and yet be kind of perversely proud of it. (laughs) We have a man that lives in the retirement community that I live in that works with the World Bank, and he is constantly all over the world, and he is retired. And he said, I am so busy. There are so many places to go and so many needs to be met. And I said, what is the primary need that you see? And he thought I was talking about economy. 
He thought I was talking about the crisis in Greece and in Spain. He thought I was talking about some of the developing states in Indonesia. And when I told him what I was thinking about, he said, well, I'd, I'll have to get around to that one of these days. The Lord Jesus insists that the attainment of honest, vital, growing, abundant life in Christ is a question of priority. He says in Matthew, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All the rest will be added to you. I stepped into a boat one day, and as I did, my daytimer fell out of my pocket into the water. At that time, I foolishly had been writing all my appointments with a flare pen. I grabbed my daytimer. I got it out. I opened it up so that it could dry. And I looked at each day. And I was so busy, I had to have at least one page for each day. And I could see this blur. And my wife said, what do you have going on today? And I said, honey... I am really busy. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm really busy because all the appointments had, been, had bled into one another. And yet I was kind of proud that I was so blame busy. It was a weird week while I sat in my office and waited for my next appointment, not knowing whether it was going to be the sheriff to arrest me or somebody in trouble. I never knew. Time is so short and eternity is so incomprehensibly vast that some things, even good things, have to go if you're going to get the best. I don't think I've told you this illustration. It's kind of a silly one, but I think it makes the point. When I was much, much younger than I am now, I used to box. And I also liked Coca-Cola and peanuts. And I made a very serious mistake. The afternoon of one of my major boxing matches of indulging in two Cokes and a big bunch of salted peanuts. I enjoyed them. I really did enjoy them. They're good. But the first right-left combination to the midsection that I absorbed that evening told me that there are some things that's going to have to go, maybe right then. <laughs> but I realized I can justify that, but not if I want to be a boxer, not if I want to achieve this end. My grandson is a football player, and he is really pretty good. He's ranked in the top three in the state of Washington in his position. And you ought to see that guy work. He works, he works, he works. I said to him, hey, I'm going such and such a place. Why don't you take a couple of days and go with me? I can't, Grandpa. I just can't. Why not? I can't miss my workouts. He has made a decision as to what is really important to him. I'll tell you the best thing about this guy 
And that is before every game, I sit up there in the stands and I look down there and along the sideline are 75 football players and his team, they're running around getting ready and stuff. And he's standing with his dad, their arms around each other, praying before every game. And that makes me full of joy. I don't care if he's the best football player in the state or in the country, if he's walking with Jesus. And I think he still has a hold of priorities. And I'm praying he keeps them when he goes to college. Priorities, that's a critically important word. All through the Bible, first things first are taught. Luke chapter 14 tells a story about people that got invited to a banquet. You may remember that. One person invited had just established a home and hadn't been settled in yet. Another person had launched a new business, and it took all of his time. Another person had suffered personal loss and had not had a proper time to grieve. And each one of them turned down the invitation because of a prior expenditure of commitment. They chose to be loyal to the ordinary push of things, and in so doing, they watched Christ walk down that dusty road and out of their sight. And we won't get the best for any less. One of the things that impresses me in this world of crazy sales, where they're already having Christmas sales, for heaven's sakes, the gospel never is at a discount. It's never a fire sale. Have you ever wondered how Jesus could say when he hung on the cross, it is finished? How could he say that? Oh, sure, one prostitute had found Christ and had changed, her life had been changed at Simon the, the Pharisee's dinner table. But a lot of other prostitutes walked the shadowed streets of Jerusalem. And a man with a withered arm in Capernaum had been healed in the synagogue. But there were a lot of other cripples around, too. Jesus worked hard. He really worked hard. He put in his time. The demands on him were huge. Mark chapter 1. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Mark chapter 3. Then he went home, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Matthew 4 tells about Jesus resting his tired body in a boat, sleeping so deeply that not even the storm that terrorized professional fishermen woke him up. That's tired. And yet Jesus' life was never feverish. He always had time for people. All kinds of people. People others wouldn't even care to be seen with. He spent hours with a promiscuous Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar. Because Jesus' life had balance. He had no time to just be busy. He took time to spend with his heavenly Father. He followed the Father's priorities. I have done what I was sent to do, he was able to say. That's why he could say, it's finished. We need to develop as a church and as individuals who make up the church a truly Christian 
sixth sense of what is important. I mean really important. And make a first place commitment to them. Let me suggest just three things very, very briefly. They're not, you think them through. You know yourself, you know your situation, and you know what the implications are for you, but I know what they are for me. We need to develop a sixth sense awareness and commitment to our relationship with God. I am so frustrated sometimes when I spend time with people and discover that their concept of God is like that little red box on the walls that says, in case of emergency, break glass. We need to live with the awareness that no man can serve two masters. So quit trying. He says you can't do it. We need to determine to live out an awareness of life and an awareness of God in every aspect and relationship of our lives. In every conversation. I had a friend in the service club that I was a member of that used to say, Bud, you have an immense amount of power. And I said, what are you talking about? I have a lot of power. He said, you can kill a conversation by walking into the room. <laughs> and my reaction to that is, well, that's a conversation that probably shouldn't have been taking place. And I need to have the kind of awareness of God's presence in my life that I don't have those kinds of conversations because I am aware he is there. Malcolm Muggeridge, who was, toward the end of his life, rector of Edinburgh University in Scotland, but was probably best known because he was the editor and publisher of Punch magazine, the old humor magazine in England. Malcolm Muggeridge wrote a book on rediscovering Jesus, and in it he tells the story of how in the early days of his coming to faith, which he came to faith in his late life, he said, I thought at the time the sound I heard was the wind rustling through the spring leaves on the tree. Now I realize, God, it was you. There's a sense of an awareness of the presence of God that we need to develop at all times. I have been in church board meetings that have been contentious. <laughs> I have been in conversations with other pastors that have been contentious. And I'm sorry for all of that. It was a bunch of nonsense. It was what Shakespeare calls sound and fury signifying nothing. There are things that are first. The church I served in Switzerland, I think I told you when I was here, was the only English language church in the city. And so if people wanted to worship in English, they came to that church. I had an exclusive market. A lot of people came to, Sweden, or to Switzerland to study hotel management. And they came from all over the world. And they liked to practice their English, so they came to the church. 
I had Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and everything under the sun and a whole bunch of American heathens. What an opportunity. But 30% of my congregation were Roman Catholic. 10% of my congregation were Ethiopian, Bulgarian, and Russian Orthodox. The rest were everything from high-end Anglican to Jamaican Pentecostal, all in the same church. The first communion service I had, it was a very small church when I first came there, and they came forward and knelt to receive communion. We used a common loaf and a common cup. As I came past the people who were kneeling, the first row that were kneeling with the bread, a gentleman second run in, crossed himself and held out his hands. And I tore off the bread and gave it to my Catholic brother. Two or three down the line, a lady crossed herself backwards and opened her mouth. I tore off the bread and I put it in her mouth. She was Bulgarian Orthodox. Four or five down the line, this lady said, Thank you, Jesus! I said, That's my Pentecostal. <laughs> and they're all kneeling right together. This was the body of Christ. It really awakened my vision to, to the scope of God's kingdom. Now, people have said to me, How in the world could you get along with that kind of a spread? Because I came home to America and the churches were all, they were all vanilla. They all were homogenized. You know, they all, everybody looks, looks alike, acts alike, believes alike, likes the same music. No, they don't. And I said, the main thing, and it's serving a church like I had overseas, the main thing, and I think it's the main thing here too, is to keep the main thing, the main thing. If you want to have a discussion and a debate, look at Christ's disciples. The night that Jesus was betrayed, they're having an argument. At the Last Supper, they're squabbling over who's going to be first. Jesus must have been just really depressed by that. He'd spent three years with these guys, and they still hadn't caught on to it. And I think sometimes he looks at our churches and he says, Oh, man alive. I went to the cross for this. Because we need to realize that we can be so busy defending our little theological position or our particular denomination or our particular stance or belief on any theology that we lose sight of the first things. You must be born again. And if you're born again, look like it. Act like it. I got a phone call. The voice on the other end of the line told me her name. I hadn't a clue who this was. She said, I'm from Hampton, Nebraska. Well, I knew where Hampton, Nebraska was. It's a little know-nothing town seven miles from where I grew up which was pretty close to a know-nothing town itself. And she said, your dad, I was in your dad's business, and your dad told me that you were here, and we're here on a, on a tour, and I'd like to see you. I'd like to meet you. I said, well, what hotel are you in? She told me what hotel she was in. And I said to my wife as we walked over to the hotel for that offered cup of coffee, 
How are we going to know this woman? I haven't a clue what she looks like and or her husband. And my wife says, I don't know. We'll just look around for an American. Americans have a tendency to kind of stand out overseas. But I walked into the lobby of that hotel, and this woman sitting clear over there jumped up, and she said, you're a Palmberg. Now, how in the world did she know that? I look like my dad. There's a family resemblance. How do the people at your work or your school or your play or your buddies at the club, how do they know you belong to Jesus? Is there a family resemblance? There will not be unless we have settled this issue of what is first in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean we walk around with our eyes closed in prayer bumping into trees. That means that we live with a kind of genuine awareness of God's presence in our lives and in our conversation and in our relationships that other people become aware of that. An awareness of our identity as children. I'd leave my home at night to go on a date or to go out with my buddies and my dad would say as I went out the door, don't forget whose you are. And I knew exactly what he meant. It put a crimp on some of my plans for the evening. Thank God. An awareness of our own identity, that we are Christ. Paul says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? You have received that from God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And then, too, we need to be aware of each other. Each other. Daring to live on the assumption that all we ever keep is what we really do for other people. William Hunt, who was a famous landscape artist of another generation, was teaching a water painting course on a lakeside late in the afternoon. And as he was walking around among his students, he noticed one student sitting there spending a whole lot of time and effort on a barn in the foreground of his painting. And Hunt said to the young man, Son, we're losing our light. It won't be here for long. You've got to make a choice between shingles and sunsets and make it soon. You only have time for one or the other. I don't know how soon the Lord's going to come. When I was a little tiny kid, the preachers were always saying that the Lord was right around this corner. They saw signs of the time and everything. And even the sun doesn't know when his return is coming. But I know it could be at any time. Three weeks ago at Covenant Shores, we had 10 deaths in one week. Well, for one thing, that that kept me going at pretty much full speed. But my wife said to me when I walked in late one night, she said, 
who was it this time? <laughs> so I told her who, who it was. And she said, you keep going at this pace and it's going to be you. Yeah. All this and heaven too. You believe it? All this in heaven too. We are such a blessed people. Not only to be raised in this country with all of its warts. Not only to be employed or at least eating regularly. But to have found our way by the Holy Spirit's leading to Christ. One of these days, you may get the word. I don't know exactly how or when or if, but you may get the word that Bud has keeled over. And uh, his memorial service was last week. And when you hear that, I want you to say, well, he's kind of an interesting old guy, but he's sure better off. Because I believe that. And I believe that because I also believe that while I was busy here and there, I didn't lose sight of what was important. And that's what my prayer is for you and for your church, which I believe is on the cusp of really experiencing significant growth, not only in numbers, numbers, uh, numbers, but in spiritual depth. And I don't want you to look at Pastor Cody and say that he's the guy that has to do it. God has gifted you with a, with a man of God that I hear good things about. And I have been impressed in the exposure I've had to him. But God holds you responsible. Not a heavy weight and load. He says, I'll bear your burdens. But you've got to give them to him. And then walk consistently with first things first.